Well, well, hello, everybody. So, because we talked about Epiphany last time, and we've, we've thought about this season before with our glorious star above us, this is, it's the cure to the winter blues. By the time you get to February and Lent, you're supposed to be blue anyway. So... You, you should be a little down, but, but um, so that doesn't, doesn't matter. It goes well with the, the soppy, melting snow, etc. But now sometimes where people don't quite know how to navigate this season and they think, oh, gloomy January, um, it's bright January. It's luminous January. And just as I like to share the fact brought to me by Professor Timothy Larson at Wheaton, that finals at Wheaton College used to be December 26th because evangelicals didn't do the popery of Christmas. That's unthinkable today. And I look forward to a day when it is unthinkable that we wouldn't radiate an epiphany light. Um, thankfully, the best thing about these seasons that have been undiscovered or not yet fully uh, embraced is that they haven't been commercialized. You won't see the Epiphany display at Home Depot. They're at St. Patrick's Day now. They've skipped, I mean, I was at the dollar store. I was like, oh my goodness, it's all green because they got nothing, right? No wonder you're depressed, right? But, but this is the beauty of it. So when we've talked about Epiphany, so that's why this light is so important. I driving by my colleague, Dr. Amy Peeler, Dr. Lance Peel, their house, they have an epiphany light in their home. We used to have one, but apparently these aren't that expensive. We should all have these in our homes. Um, so some of you are bravely pushing forward, not, not removing Christmas decorations. We caved in. We said, ah, because I had a tree, because I did that, sitting in my backyard for a year um, because we pushed through and said, we're going to hold on until February 2nd with our Christmas tree. But I wasn't willing to do that again. So I so we put our Christmas tree out, but we've still got some Christmas decorations up. We've still got the Magi in our house, and we're still, of course, radiating in that light here. I love this quote from Basil the Great, one of the early Christian theologians. Could anyone be so lacking in sensibility and so ungrateful as to not join us in all our gladness, exaltation, and radiant joy? This feast belongs to the whole universe. He's not referring to Christmas. Stars cross the sky. Wise men journey from pagan lands. Earth receives its Savior in a cave. Let there be no one without a gift to offer. Not referring to Christmas. Referring to this season of glorious light. Now it is no longer dust you are and to dust you shall return, but you are joined to heaven and into heaven you shall be taken up. Maybe it's the season of deification, right? <laughs> Thinking about um, the way that we are invited, not by nature, but by grace, to participate in who God is. That's what the incarnation is about. God becomes human so that we can become God. Now, that always throws people off. They think that when that famous line is suggested, that somehow it's, uh, it's equating us with God. Not at all. We are never honorary members of the Trinity. But the Trinity has come down to us. And we are to marinate in that, to celebrate that in this season in particular. We are the pagan People who come to Christ, unless you happen to have Jewish ancestry, in which case, what a blessed person you are. 
But if you're like me without much at all, right, who come from a pagan ancestry, we are coming um, as we've been invited to celebrate in this season. I get these images that I draw from from a a wonderful uh, compendium of the church year by Eden Chadwick that uh, in some senses illustrates an Anglican way of seeing the world. And you'll sometimes see these on the internet. It is an Anglican visualization of the church year um, that many traditions borrow from, and I'm glad they do. And here in the Epiphany season, in this illustration, you see these magi gathered together. We talked about the Greek origin of the word Epiphany last time, and it actually shows up in the Bible, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. The grace of God, which now has manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospels. Again, radiating in this season. We could look, of course, to Old Testament anticipations of that as well. Everyone's into cold plunges now. You'll just say, oh, cold plunge, I'm hardcore, I do. We invented that in the Christian tradition. These are uh, the great Orthodox tradition of baptizing people, you know, throwing them into the icy cold, right? And awakening. And again, the fact that fitness enthusiasts are into that, they don't realize where it comes from. Um, just like Halloween enthusiasts don't know that All Saints Day is where this uh, echo comes from. And I love how Robert Weber, a professor of mine, a professor uh, some of you may have heard of, who put us on the Canterbury Trail, put evangelicals toward rediscovering the Anglican tradition. There are two sides to epiphany spirituality. Christ manifested in us and through us. Through the Holy Spirit, we we are able to enter into a spiritual union with Christ the model of true humanity. We don't know what it means to be human until we see Jesus. That should be our anthropology. He's the mirror that we measure ourselves in every manifestation of humanity next to. And of course, we don't measure up. And so we mystically unite with him. Aeon was celebrated at this time, a pagan god of time. And instead of getting Christianity paganized, instead, we Christianize paganism. And so, this strange deity that was celebrated around this time, they're so confident in the declaration of the gospel that here he is surrounded by the signs of the zodiac, all possible human time. And I like to think about this, and that that's, that's Jesus's job. Aeon was a a um, subsidiary of the role that Christ would play. Christ takes time into his, himself. I have a friend who wrote a book. It's an intriguing title. Christ is time. <laughs> There's no way we should understand time apart from Jesus. There was never a time where Jesus wasn't. And so again, all these dimensions that we haven't yet unpacked. Early Christian fathers did unpack them. Origen talks about the three gifts in the Bible, trying to defend Christians in the face of pagan persecution. He said, gold 
is to the king, myrrh as to the one who was mortal, the burial anointment, and incense as to God. He's saying, don't make fun of our magi tradition. There's great meaning to it, Celsus, who's trying to give the arguments that are set up to murder of Christians, scapegoating them, pushing them outside of society. Origen makes a beautiful case. And in so doing, he unpacks the symbolism of the magi. They're, of course, later deemed kings, which is why in our play we refer to them as the very clever men, right? These very clever people. Um, But that tradition might be understood as the royal destiny of humanity, sons and daughters of our heavenly king. Maybe we can think of ourselves in this way. And when, of course, we put that symbol on our church, Lord, bless this house, there's a play on words in Latin, Christo Mansionem Benedictat, right? Caspar Melchior and Balthazar. There's a, there's a beautiful play. In Latin, it would simply mean bless this house, and then those magi get names in, in retrospect. And so, and the 2023, when we did that, we're letting this house, this church, radiate in epiphany light. And that's, of course, what happens in your own homes as well. I hope you've blessed your homes. We've blessed maybe what, 50% of the rooms in our home with, with a little 20 CMB 23 and three crosses in there. So just to remind you of the little uh, house church that we all live in, that, that our homes, our dorms are, in some senses, satellites of this sacred space. This is what epiphany is about. So again, if you haven't done it, I believe there's chalk still available. Um, blessed chalk. Um, we don't need, I just have to switch the three because it's just from the two to the three. You don't even have to do it all over again when you, when you have it every year. And you look at that all throughout the year, right? Even we have one going into our basement just to remind me, right? So all this to say, in the epiphany tradition, I like to think about the life journey is to humble ourselves before the Lord, you have a young man, a middle-aged man, and then an older man, often. So the midlife crisis, you stop looking to your own glory, and you look to the glory of Christ. I have a student, Dante, who wrote a book, I mean, sorry, not a book, he wrote a wonderful, almost a book, a wonderful senior thesis, and we said, Dante, this is so good, you've got to get this published, and he succeeded in doing so. And in this article that you can read called The Blackening of Balthazar, what he shows us is that when the African magi appears, which he does, because the Christian tradition in Europe is starting to account for the multitude of ethnicities, and instead of pushing them out, they say, well, of course, the template of the magi. Christians invent diversity, right? This is the religion that accounts for all the cultures of the world. And he totally got the Getty Museum in Los Angeles in his sights, and he pulled the trigger. Because the Getty had a very bad show that tried to say that the black magi is somehow um, a connection. There's a connection to slavery there, and it shows the racism of Europeans. And Dante said, nonsense, nonsense. Already there was a dignified view of Africans in Christian understanding. So I commend that article to you. It's really wonderful. It's free online. The Blackening of Balthazar. As we contend, as our culture is doing in a fresh way, 
with how to grapple with the multitude of ethnicities, only the Christian church has the answer. I believe that. Only the Christian church has the possibility of repentance and forgiveness and true unity in diversity. And the Magi, they are one of our templates for that. You might say, well, right, but didn't we Protestants tear down the beautiful images of the Magi? Well, we did, and here is an image in the Reformation of someone coming to rip apart a beautiful image, including a black Magi, of people adoring Jesus. This is actually, if you look closely at it, an image of someone coming to rip down a beautiful painting of these kings coming to worship Jesus. Not, of course, worship Mary, but worship Christ. And yes, that occurred, but one of the most fascinating discoveries in the history of art lately is the realization that some people don't want us to come to know, and that is that Protestants had glorious depictions of the Magi also. And in this particular one, by Peter Ertzen, from the second half of the 16th century, made in Antwerp, there was a suggestion, how can we continue to make images of the Magi worshiping Jesus as Protestants while still emphasizing the message of grace? And the way that they did that was they made sure that the Magi had empty hands. They had nothing to bring, no good works, no resume to offer Jesus. Here's the good things I've done for you, Lord. Can I come in now? But an empty hand... And I mentioned Robert Farrar Capon, the great chef and priest in the Episcopal tradition who trumpeted the Lutheran message of grace that is radiant in our Anglican tradition and steps on the toes of the caricatures of Protestant doctrines of grace offered by some councils in the Roman Catholic Church (laughs) and says, no, 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 no. The Pauline thrust The Lutheran thrust is right. We can respond to gifts as a live hand and try to clutch them. Or we can respond with a dead hand, in which case we will be perpetually open to all goods. The posture of grace. Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I need your life pulsing through me if I'm ever to do anything good. That's the Magi. The emphasis is Christ. That is enough for us this morning. We could stop right now by talking about her. It is not that we are saying, okay, we're done with Jesus now. Let's move on. Let's go to a grad school chapter for the advanced. Or let's begin to create a barnacle on the true vessel of the Lord, the church. Let's get some aerodynamic drag now so that we don't focus on our Lord Jesus. No, that is not what we're doing when we focus on the Virgin Mary. At least I hope that's not what we're doing. I often use the analogy when I talk about this is that um, let's imagine that I'm so devoted to my wife, Denise, who's in the back there, that, um, that she said, all right, it's time for you to meet mom and dad. And I go to meet mom and dad, her mom and dad, now my mother-in-law and father-in-law. And as soon as we get to the door and the big introduction happens, 
John Hawkins reaches his hand across and tries to meet mine, and I go, get away from me. I love your daughter alone. Sola Denise. Sola Denise. Our relationship is over at that moment, right? And when her mother does the same, I push Linda Hawkins away. Get out of here. Don't you realize I'm devoted to your daughter? It's, it, that's it. That's it. What instead... My relationship with Linda and John Hawkins, of course, Hawkins is Denise's maiden name. That relationship has deepened, and the result is a deepening of my relationship with Denise. So it is with Joseph. So it is with the Virgin Mary. You get to know Mary more. It is a sign of a maturation, a maturation. Alternately, if I said, you know, Denise... Uh, I have something to share with you, but I'd like to go to Linda first. Is that okay with you? Right? I'm going to call up your mom and have a, a, a dis- I mean, that would, it would be a sign of a totally distorted relationship. And that would be so weird. And no one's, I mean, it's just, I, I, and again, I guess there are, there are some people, you can drag them out of church history, and I know where they are, and I can point you to, who have gone to marry alone. And that happens, but I don't Because, as John Wesley said, quoting this great line, abusus non tolit usum. Abuse does not bar use. Okay? Just because some people have taken Mary too far uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't attend to her at all. This is not the first time. I don't know the year. Maybe someone could drag this out. I can't quite recall. Um, But we had a series, a very long series, on Mary for Anglicans at All Souls, where we, with Mike Strachan, and he and I worked on this together, we had Mary in the New Testament, Patristic Mary, Medieval Mary, Renaissance and Reformation, Early Modern, Postmodern Mary, we went through this material a long time ago. And, um, and as I was asked to kind of cover it again, just as some people are packing up their images of Mary, if they have them, into the attic for where she'll come out next year in Advent and Christmas, um, you say, hey, let's focus on her now because she's a year-round phenomenon. Um, I thought about the possibility of just repeating this material. I doubt, even if you were here, that you would remember it. I certainly didn't remember it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not that good of a teacher. You know, it's like, how, how do you impart this over time? As I'm looking at my slides, I'm like, oh, this is really fun. I, it's time to do it again. This is what's great about the church year. Just when you've forgotten the radiance of epiphany, right? Then you get to think about it again. And so we certainly could do that. And based on how it goes today, reading the room, uh, maybe we could backfill some of this material. But I thought instead we would focus on uh, the northern light phenomenon. Now, I'm gonna, this, is, this is the analogy I'm going to run with here. Um, and I hope that um, you will remember this because it's the way that our church is structured. And so... Um, I think this will come back to you every single time. 
um, that you come into this space. You'll think about, I hope, this understanding of northern light. Um, Since I've taught that course, I've changed in my relationship with the doctrines about the Virgin Mary. And which is to say, um, I don't really think of it as a doctrinal fight as much anymore. That just doesn't interest me as much. Um, And I think that's because I've moved from a, okay, here's what the Catholics think, here's what the Orthodox think, here's what the Anglicans think, um, which is fine. I haven't abandoned those important details. But instead, it's sort of Mary has become something of a, um, and this might be scandalous to hear, for some, something of a presence rather than a, an idea, right? Um, sort of um, she's with the Lord in a way that I'm not going to have to spell out in detail, right? Because I'm an Anglican and I don't have to. I have liberty in that regard. <laughs> but, but, but she's there and um, she becomes a living presence in the church right? In, in, a, in a positive way. Um, so, so, and I also want to mention that Gretchen, Kaylin, Annalise, I don't know, um, I see Kaylin, Annalise, are you here today? Okay, so we've got some experts in, in this room, right, who have taken the course on the Virgin Mary we teach at Wheaton, and um, they have done wonderful papers on this, so, um, so we have resources, and then maybe some of you um, have, uh, have some perspectives on the Virgin Mary, um, that you might want to share. And, and I would be welcome um, to, to invite those if, you, if you'd like to bring those forward. Maybe for you, you'd be like, yeah, that's where I am too. Um, I, I gravitate toward um, thinking about the Virgin Mary a lot, not in competition with my relationship with Christ, but in the span of all souls, some of you might say, danger, 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 danger. I remember hearing uh, my youth pastor got a job at Park Street Church in Boston. And Boston, this is Akengay, the famous origin of the evangelical renewal of the mid-20th century. And um, he said some evangelical pastor decided to take it upon himself to preach a sermon about the Virgin Mary. And lo and behold, in a packed church right there in Boston, I can't remember what the park is called, right there in the middle of it all, a centrally placed congregation, Someone got up, and it'd be embarrassing to do it here, but imagine if we were ten times as many people, and got up and called him out and said, this is idolatry, this must stop. Stopped the sermon. Stopped in the, in the 20th century this happened. Fascinating. Late 20th century. So, I mean, this can still occur. And, um, and again, if she becomes competitive in your relationship with Christ, there's good reason to do that. There's good reason to do that. And so some of you might be coming from that perspective, which would be okay. And so because of that, and I think maybe I was coming from that perspective, that's why this book was particularly important to me, and is. It's a book by Tim Perry, and it's called Mary for Evangelicals. And we're not done with this book um, in several senses. I want to... Unpack it for you just briefly, um, because, uh, and I think what you'll see is there's a surprise coming in regard to this book. Whether or not we get to that surprise today remains to be seen. We will certainly get to it by the end of the series. And so um, the point that I want to make is that the argument that this Anglican-Canadian minister makes, that evangelicals have an especially interesting contribution to make, 
to the great Christian debates, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, about the Virgin Mary, um, again, you'll see why this will become important. And it particularly has to do with the image on the front of the book. But because I can't assume that background knowledge, let's just unpack a little bit about this. In that last time we walked through this, I walked through the history, and if we zoom in here, we've got down here, we've got Queen Mary, that is nicknamed Bloody Mary, and then you have this enormous resurgence of Anglican Marian devotion that most people don't know much about. And so the story is often told that the Roman Catholic side here and then the Protestant side here is that, yes, there's a a hyper-focus on Mary, including doctrinal definitions about her in the Roman Catholic sphere, all the way going through 1965 here. And then that Archich is the Anglican-Roman Catholic dialogue that happened about the Virgin, which which we'll reference. And what I simply want to mention is that we've got something to offer as well. The Anglican tradition's approach to the Virgin Mary has been consummately interesting. And I would go so far as to say even perhaps preferable because of its adventurousness. So let's think about this. So again, just to unpack some of this, what we did is we simply took the scriptures and said, let that be the magnet that we take to the Marian tradition throughout history and see what it attracts. So that was the the approach that we took uh, when this was taught a while back. And so I I mentioned um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey's famous line, an important line. Modern Anglican theology owes many of its characteristics to the central place held within it by the incarnation. I mean, you might go so far as to say that some people, um, are, they're trying to do an, uh, a theology 101 lecture. And so they say, okay, well, uh, we can't get all the details, but, but, the, but the Catholics, they emphasize the crucifixion. The Orthodox, they emphasize the resurrection. And they leave it at that. But we might, and the Anglicans, we emphasize the incarnation. Now, this is not in any way to say that the Catholics don't believe in the resurrection or the Orthodox don't believe in the crucifixion or that the Anglicans don't believe in either. But what are you going to emphasize? What mystery are you going to put the pedal to the metal on? And if this is the case, that that is one of the specializations of Anglicanism, which it may be, we have to have an understanding of Mary because that's how the incarnation took place. I see we have another Mary that I neglected to mention who, who, who also has done um, some research in this area. So all that to say, um, I'm looking around and I see other veterans of the Mary class, which I look forward. Maybe if you would like, I didn't want to spring this on you, um, but if you'd like to contribute, give a little summary of what you, you've been thinking, you're welcome to do so. Um, we've got three weeks to do this, okay? There's a lot at the beginning, but if you'd like to say, I'd like to give a three-minute encapsulation, you are welcome to do so. And then we get to this great book. And if, you, if I were to recommend one, in addition to Mother of the Lamb, the story of a global icon, one book, I'm joking. Um, if I was to recommend one book about Mary in the Anglican tradition, um, it would be um, A.M. Alchin, The Joy of All Creation. 
Amazingly enough, um, he, at his funeral, Callistos Ware, the great Orthodox uh, prelate, was present along with major Catholic figures. How did he do that and stay an Anglican the whole time? It's incredible. But this wild, adventurous Anglican theologian wrote a book about Mary in the Anglican tradition, and he said, you want to understand what it's like? Two special qualities. It prefers poetic imagery to abstract speculation, and it expresses joy. So what I'm suggesting is if you welcome Mary into your life, into your homes, not as a competition with Christ, but as an enhancement of your relationship with him, you might find yourself also inviting joy into your home in a fresh way and into your life. Just throwing that out there. Or even, perhaps more importantly, a new capacity to navigate sorrow. Because some of you are suffering deeply. And you need to know what it's like to stand at the foot of the cross. And she didn't flee, did she? She stuck around. Some of you know people in your life who are suffering. And you need to know what it's like to stand with them at the foot of their cross. And she's an exemplar for that. She's an exemplar. She's, in some senses, our biggest sister. The one we can look to who modeled and exemplified the Christian faith. If you've had a mentor in your life, I hope it has not gotten to the point where you worship idolatrously that mentor. The relationship will not go well. But they provide that exemplar for you. And I think that is what she has been for the Christian church. She has emerged as that icon that we look to of what it would mean to bear Christ, what it would mean to walk with him. She emerges not as someone who is saying, worship me, never, never. But she emerges as someone who shows us what Christian discipleship is about. We are not going to unpack all the places in Scripture where she emerges, not because we don't care about Scripture, but frankly, I'm assuming that. I hope, I mean, you come to a church where you get Scripture all the time. You should have these down. I should have these down. And to do a quick summary of where she is in the Bible as our foundation as we move forward, in Paul, she's born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. Don't say Paul doesn't have a view of Mary. And I wrote down here back in the day, um, for Paul, drawing from Tim Perry, she's no more than an anonymous woman. But I would change that opinion now, based upon the New Testament scholar Amy Peeler that I've worked with. She's like, actually, I don't think that's the case for Paul at all. She's not no more than an anonymous woman. Paul's fundamental departure point is the incarnation. Just because he doesn't spell it out with a huge magnificat somewhere in Galatians. It wasn't appropriate. He's calling them out. He doesn't have time for that. But he took as his point of departure that understanding that the way God came into the world was the same way we did, through a mother. He's not an apparition. I like to point out that this is the difference between Krishna and Jesus, one of them. Krishna doesn't take on flesh forever. It's an in and out, in and out, blue skin, just to emphasize that. 
But Jesus takes on flesh forever, which is good news if you happen to have flesh as well. In Mark, she's a misguided but well-intentioned opponent. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. She's a misguided but well-intentioned opponent. And when I look at what the scriptures say, I am glad for my Anglican liberties. Gratitude for the latitude, right? In the sense of, yeah, because it does seem to be conflicting with the ministry of Jesus. We are not necessarily bound um, to the understanding that our Catholic brothers and sisters declare of the immaculate conception that she was born without original sin. We might say, don't get distracted with those details. The emphasis should be elsewhere. It's not that you couldn't believe that. But to say that that's the main story, mm, keep your eyes on her relationship with the adult Christ as well. Okay, in Matthew, the scandal surrounding her pregnancy can be explained. That seems to be the Apostle Matthew's concern. When we read Matthew again, Kaylin, uh, tell me if you agree, it was fascinating just to, to, to feel Matthew hearing scandalous uh, libel, slander against Jesus and just combing the scriptures and coming and writing the gospel and saying, no, it's foretold, it's foretold. And so the power of that gospel, again, we're taking that for granted here. In Luke, she's a prophet, undeniably. Undeniably. She takes her place almost sermonically in that incredible description of the Magnificat that, of course, every time you pray evening prayer, her lips become yours. She's a mother, a disciple, and a representative of Jesus' new community. In John, beautifully, she's a symbol of the corporate faith that has no role in the ministry of Jesus, but becomes the mother of believers at the advent of his hour. When Jesus said to John, behold your mother, the question to ask is, was he talking to you? Not just to John, to me. The church seems to have moved in that direction, pondering that possibility. And you might say, right, but that's what Catholics do. Well, the Anglicans develop that in a profoundly rich way as well. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, she is the exalted heavenly queen who is Eve and the persecuted faithful at once in Revelation 12. And so if you get to Revelation 11, you're reading along and you see this elusive image of the Ark of the Covenant. Strange. And then the chapter ends and then there's this woman clothed with the sun. Very strange. But the chapters are modern interpolations. There is no chapter division in Revelation. And so in some senses what that means is that Mary illustrates the Ark of the Covenant, or better, the Ark of the Covenant was an illustration of Mary, in the sense that if the glory of God is going to reside among us, he needs a place, and that place was the virgin's womb (laughs) before it became him walking around. Amazing. Amazing. And if you are concerned that an exalted Mariology 
has no place in Christianity, your concern should first be with the writer of the book of Revelation because that seems to occur there. And this is one of the things that helped us as we've unpacked this um, another year we just finished in class is that one of the ways to help us understand Mary is to swap lenses every now and then, swap lenses. So we can put on the exegetical lens and say, what does it say about her in the Bible? What was she like? Historical questions in the first century. And those are important questions. And we're not tossing those questions out, but we're saying if we were to pursue those questions deeply, the Bible itself is saying you might consider pondering her in another register. That's what Revelation is doing. You might consider thinking about her as an image of the persecuted faithful, right? Doesn't the dragon chase her and she runs away and escapes into the wilderness? Is that just an interpretation of Jesus running into Egypt as a refugee? Or is it also an interpretation of Nero persecuting Christians? We know that is who John was writing for. Wow. And so Mary as the gathered church. And for me, this has blown my mind. And so then when I see Mary show up in the Anglican tradition and in the Orthodox tradition, all throughout church history, I can think maybe this is a way that the body of Christ is is communicating what's going on. She's a symbol of the gathered faithful. And the Bible does that, not later tradition. The Bible does that. And so the question we ask is, what does the Anglican Mary look like? I like to think of her sometimes as a barometer of the mood of the church, right? Really interesting. Church is suffering. All of a sudden, Mary is grieving in these beautiful icons. The church is radiant and doing wonderfully, and so Mary is depicted in a radiant fashion. And when you do that, then in some senses it protects us from that concern with idolatry. And we should always have that concern. We should never retire that concern. But in sometimes for me that has opened up how to view and perceive the virgin. In that last session, we looked at the Marian doctrines. But the problem with this approach is that I was in some senses letting the Roman Catholic Church run the show. As I was saying, how are we going to respond to your doctrines? And so, in the year 431, Mary was declared the mother of God. I think there's good reason. A lot of scripture attracts that. It's simply saying that Jesus was divine even in her womb. That's what mother of God says. It's not about her. It's about the one in her womb. And if even Karl Barth came around, the great Protestant theologian, to realizing the necessity of that formula, then I think it might be worth considering. And we looked at the perpetual virginity in those debates, and without question, the one that we can all hold on to, and I think we must hold on to, is the virgin birth of Christ. It was one of the fundamentals that were passed around with the threats of Protestant liberalism in the early 20th century. You've got to believe in the virgin birth of Christ, and I believe that continues to be the case. That whatever you say about whether or not there were brothers of Christ and things like that, don't get distracted. The most important thing is that she did not have sex with Joseph. <laughs> Nor was she, as slanderous 
accusations were made. Was she raped by a Roman soldier? That's what people were saying about Jesus. The schoolyard gossip, perhaps, about him. But no, the Christians believe, and we recite it in the creed every Sunday, virgin birth, human mother, divine father. And that's why we call God Father. (laughs) Because Joseph wasn't. Fascinating. That's a truth we say every single Sunday. Every sermon goes back to the course correction of the Nicene Creed. And there we proclaim that virgin birth. This is not exactly tangential material. And so the Immaculate Conception, the Catholics defined that in 1854, the Assumption into Heaven in 1950, the Co-Redemptrix, etc. Again, these are debates that I don't want to get too lost in. Instead, I'd like to focus on northern light. Northern light. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm just going to jump ahead here a second. Okay. I ended that last session with a provocation that I'd like to take up now. There's this wild figure I found, this theologian, who said, you know what? We've had these debates with the Catholics. And we've seen some things we agree with, some things we disagree with. But really, we sometimes tend to stand as a protest against the seeming corruption of the Middle Ages. Or we adopt wholesale the Roman Catholic understanding of Mary. And this guy, R.J. Halliburton, says, you know, we've had too much extraordinary views of Mary's and not enough ordinary devotion." So, why would I say northern light is the theme that I'd like to meditate upon for the next two weeks? Here's why. Where's Mary in our church? There's an easy one, but I'm looking for the hard ones too. Where is Mary uh, in this building right now? Imagery depictions of her. All right, we've got the obvious. We've got the obvious. Where else? Two times. One, that's basically a pieta. Where's the other? Jesus meets his mother. Jesus meets his mother. So we are in some senses surrounded. Now, she's all over downstairs. She's everywhere. I mean, we have, I don't know, where, where did we get all these, are these creches? I mean, they're just everywhere. I mean, she's even in the Pentecost wooden figures. I think we've got to catch up to what's going on down there, right? That's kind of the beauty of it. I mean, and of course, we do have her here too, right? Remember when she showed up at Christmas time? Kind of exciting. And uh, we used to even have uh, the, I think we've been doing some cleaning, but it said Jesus meets his mother right on the window, right? So kind of interesting. So you, you had your reasons to remember it. Um, but uh, really interestingly, this is the image that we have to contemplate. And why do I say northern light? For a variety of reasons. In the architectural tradition of our faith, the north got less light because we're in the northern hemisphere. And so what's amazing, and we'll unpack this next time, if you look at Chartres Cathedral, for example, Mary gets focus on the north so that all of the 
southern light goes to her son, Jesus. And what was interesting is I've been pondering this image over and over again, the origin of which we'll unpack, is I realized if you get a compass out, that's north. We are an accidented, no, well, we are an accidented church, not an oriented church. East is that way. And what's really beautiful, that's, therefore, those mountains in the background can be understood as the Appalachian Mountains. And north is that way, and that's south, and of course we're facing west. St. Peter's Basilica does that. There's nothing wrong with it, right? There's a lot, of, but normally churches are facing east, but in this case, uh, we're facing west, and I think it was a good decision. And therefore, she has that spot. And I want you to, um, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, as we move ahead for the next two sessions, we're going to have our annual meeting as well, contemplate what that would mean. To not get all of the glory yourself. To give all of the glory to Christ. I think that's the accurate way of viewing Mary. And it is an invitation to me and to you to not seek the southern light yourself. To not say, I want all the glory, but to say, I want to migrate to a quieter, we might say more contemplative part of the church. What we're going to do in the next two times is I'm going to unpack that metaphor in detail. This was sort of foundation for us. And if you have ways that that has unfurled or not unfurled in your life, feel free to share it. We'll have more time for sharing next time. And... um, And I'm going to show you some examples in the Anglican tradition of where she shows up in the lady chapels on the north. And then I'm going to connect it to our San Clemente mosaics that Denise and I got to visit um, this summer. Because those mosaics in Rome are the inspiration for this mural in the back of our church. There's a connection to Mary there as well. Folks, thanks for being here today. I look forward to seeing you the next two as well.